Well, let's turn our attention to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, as I said, we'll be in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 5. I've entitled this sermon, The Power of Weak Preaching. Have you all heard about what's going on near Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky? At a little school called Asbury University? Have you been tracking that story? Well, it, uh, it seems that on February 8th, uh, it's a Christian college, and as most Christian colleges have in their schedule, they have weekly chapel services where perhaps instructors get up and, and, and preach and maybe uh, pastors from local churches and special guests and that sort of thing. Well, anyway, one such chapel service occurred just a couple of weeks ago on February 8th, and after that service, uh, a handful of students stuck around, and, uh, and they prayed for each other, and they wanted to worship God a little longer than the chapel service uh, had lasted, and what happened next simply could not be predicted. There was initially about 20 students, uh, I've read, and they testify that during that time, and for some time thereafter, there was a profound sense of the presence of the Spirit of God. What followed was a prolonged time of worship that day that attracted students to come back from class and instructors to come and even people from the community uh, to come and fill up the 1,500 or so seats uh, in that auditorium. And this sustained worship, this sustained sense of God's presence lasted for more than two weeks straight. In fact, the, the, those who run the college uh, uh, had announced that this past Friday would be the final, you know, we're, they were going to wrap things up. Um, you know, they, of course, people accused them of trying to, you know, put an end to what the Spirit was doing, and uh, I thought the president... Um, answer was pretty good. We didn't start it, and we certainly can't finish it. But um. So the question comes to us, did genuine spirit-wrought revival come to Asbury? Right? I mean, that's been, it's all over the internet, right? Lots of people are sharing their opinions. I don't know. I hope so. I pray that lives were changed and hearts drawn uh, to the Savior and His Word to repent of sin and live holy lives and desire to, to love and serve the church and reach the lost. I hope that happened. What bodes well for Asbury's renewed spiritual vigor originating from the Spirit is the fact that ordinary means of grace were employed during this long worship What I mean is that there, there doesn't appear to have been any man-made theatrics to try and manipulate people into spiritual decisions or to have a religious awakening of some kind. One reporter who attended several days with the Asbury worshipers described the activities like this. It was a steady diet of proclamation, both standard preaching and personal testimonies, public confession, prayer, both individual and corporate, scripture reading, and singing. Crazy stuff, right? That's pretty ordinary stuff, isn't that? That's the stuff that Christians do when they gather, whether it's in a church service or a chapel service or even in just somebody's home for fellowship. 
You know, we've learned much about revivals through the history of the church. There's been a lot of them, and there's been a lot that's been written about them. And we've learned one thing, that we cannot predict them. We cannot, we cannot announce it will take place by putting up a tent and, and, and hanging some signs. We cannot manufacture one by long altar calls or bringing in people who are gifted speakers but not really good at actually telling you what the Bible means. Those things have been tried and failed spectacularly. Revival comes when God's Spirit unexpectedly visits people in extraordinary power in the context of ordinary prayer and preaching. It comes through the normal reading of Scriptures, the ordinary sharing of testimonies. The, it, it happens when people talk about the cross of Christ. It comes through these ordinary means God gives us, but He decides when to unleash His power through them. He decides. Impressive men, self-promoting preachers, they don't unleash God's power. In fact, when they try to flex their spiritual awesomeness, the Spirit actually stays away. That's what Paul meant when he said there was a way of preaching where the cross of Christ can be emptied of His power in chapter 1 and verse 17. Now, humbly seeking God in the ways He calls us to seek Him, that's the right approach. Waiting for Him to move while we are simply being faithful, that's the right posture. But what makes this hard, friends whether we want to admit it or not, what makes it hard is that we tend to be too impressed today with slick productions and famous people and flashy speakers. We want guaranteed results, and we want that right quick. We're convinced if we bring in the right guy and play the right style of music and give people what they want, it'll produce a revival. That's how we tend to think. But that isn't how God visits His people in power. It isn't. The Corinthian Christians lived in a culture that saw those who could dazzle a crowd as wise. They lived in a culture that saw philosophers who were clever enough to uncover some hidden knowledge as worthy of following. But in our text, we are reminded that God unleashes His power through weak preaching. Not through pompous speaking, not through look-at-me dramatics, not through famous people boasting about finding spirituality. No, God unleashes His power through lowly people who tell the story of a Savior who is brought low. To say it another way, God unleashes His power through weak preaching. I'll unpack what I mean by that in a moment. But let's turn our attention to the Word of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 5. That powerful command from heaven's throne I mentioned a few moments ago, that's, what's, that's what we're going to encounter here. The command of God, the, the word of God, his wisdom and power right here in this text. Pay careful attention. God's word reads like this. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. 
And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Hmm. Many will try to duplicate the Asbury University revival by trying to reverse engineer it. They'll try to examine what kind of music was sung or, or, or how long the prayers were or the topics that were being discussed. Or people will try to improve on what happened at Asbury by trying to produce a revival that's better through their own ideas of how people should speak or sing or pray or whatever. Now, this text isn't about revival per se. It's about how people are transformed. Revival is when a lot of people get transformed at once, so you can see how these things relate. Paul is correcting the church here, correcting the church that had run after their own ideas on how to locate God's power. And so he reminds them here that, that God unleashes his power through weak preaching. Well, how did they know this? Well, first of all, the Corinthians had experienced God's transforming power. God's power had shown up at Corinth. They had their own experience with it. You might say they were part of the Corinthian revival. A little background is helpful. You see, Corinth was a rough place. It was a, it was a tough town. It was a busy port city with lots of businessmen coming and going. And just like today, in places like that, immorality runs rampant. There was corruption and prostitution and every kind of perversion. And the, and the Christians in Corinth formerly lived in ways that reflected that city. They were part of the way of life there. But then God sent his apostle to Corinth. God had sent a word from on high through his, his messenger a message concerning his son, a message that was folly to the world, but God's power to save for those who would believe. Acts 17, I'm sorry, Acts 18 and verse 8 simply records it this way. Are you ready? Many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. That's it. Not a spectacular description by Luke there. Simply that these Corinthian sinners had heard the message of God's Son and believed. They had been transformed. To, 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 to restate my first point then, the Corinthian Christians had experienced God's transforming power. They had experienced it in their own conversion. Many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Friends, that is a stunning sentence. They had been born into slavery to sin, you see. They had been shackled to hatred of God, imprisoned to the wicked lusts of their flesh, and they had been living in a place that encouraged them to live in the deepest depravity as they ran after their evil desires. That's who they were before the message of the cross came. But upon hearing it, 
But upon hearing Paul speak of the Son of God who came and died to set them free, many hearing it believed. Many experienced the life-giving power of the Spirit that makes the spiritually dead come alive in Christ. Many who had lived only for themselves experienced the Spirit's awakening power that makes men joyfully offer themselves wholly to God. What happened to the Thessalonians to their north had happened to them. Listen to how Paul described the great heavenly power coming to Thessalonica. They had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's the power of the Spirit that the Corinthians had come to understand through their own experience. In our text, Paul tells his friends to remember it. Remember the awesome presence and power of God that fell upon you. Look at his emphasis on the Corinthians' experience in our text. Look at verse 1, when I came to you. Look at verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. Verse 3, I was with you. Verse 4, your faith. You see the emphasis. He's saying, remember the power of God that came to you that day. Paul called the Corinthians to think back to when the Spirit had been unleashed upon them. When their lives had been arrested by the Lord and mightily changed forever. Have you ever experienced a time like that? Does this sound like a fairy tale I'm describing to you, or can you relate? Can you remember a time when you felt God's presence so powerfully upon you? The truth being so alive, it arrested the very course of your life. When you felt the the fear of the Lord come upon you, and when you thought, if I don't have Jesus, I'm undone, that's what Paul's describing here. That's what he's reminding the Corinthians of here. You know, the students at Asbury University testify that during these last two weeks, they have experienced, these are quotes now, a deep peace, a heavy presence of God. A sense of awe prevailing. Now whether you believe that those things are genuine or not, I'm not here to convince you. But that's what Paul's talking about when he reminds the Corinthians of of when they came to Christ, when they were converted, the power of God that they experienced. Paul knew that they had come face to face with the life-altering power of the Spirit, and now he was asking them to think about how that power had come to them. He's asking them to remember how that power had come to them. He wanted them to understand that God unleashes His power through weak preaching. Paul reminded the Corinthians that they had experienced that power in their own conversions, and now he speaks of how how he had been used to bring that power to them. And he doesn't boast, only in his weakness. For that's my second point. Paul reminded them that he had come to Corinth as a weak preacher. And we see that in verses 1 through the first part of verse 4 in our text. Now, I'm using this phrase, weak 
weak preacher in sort of a pregnant way. I, I want you to understand it in a couple of different aspects. First, Paul had been weak in the sense that he was personally unimpressive. He himself, as a preacher, as, a, as one sharing the gospel with these people, had been personally unimpressive. He was a weak, ordinary man that didn't preach in a way that brought specific attention to himself. For example, he was personally unimpressive in how he had spoken to them. Look at verse 1 there. I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you with lofty speech or wisdom. Wisdom in the sense of the way the philosophers spoke of that day. Now, just before Paul went to Corinth, he had gone to Athens. Follow me here for a moment. If you want to know what happened in Corinth, you look at Acts 18. But in Acts 17, Paul had been, you know, just a little north, uh, what would they be, a little northeast of, of Corinth in Athens. He had been there, and, and Acts 17 tells us about his time there. Athens was the hotbed of Greek philosophy. When Paul had come to share the gospel with the philosophers there, this, uh, this was what they had hoped to hear. This is Acts 17 and verse 19. Listen. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. That's what people in Athens and Corinth and the surrounding area were looking for in speakers. The the, the kind of attraction to newness and lofty speech. Uh, and and that, had, that had snuck into the church, that idea of looking to impressive people. But Paul reminded the Corinthians that he had not been like that when they first met him. When he preached to them, he was not impressive. He was weak compared to the rock stars that most people flocked to. Paul adds in verse 4 there, look now, I'm going to read from the New American Standard at this point. In verse 4, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. I wasn't trying to impress you with, the, with, with my logic and the power of my own persuasion is what he's saying there. Paul did not try to get men to believe the truth through his own efforts, through his own, rather through his own power. He did, of course, try to answer their objections and, and try to persuade them of the truth and urge them to believe, but he didn't do so relying on himself or the power of his style or charisma or smooth speech or something like that. Yes, Paul was unimpressive in how he had spoken, and he was careful to do so because he didn't want to be mixed up with the school of philosophers. He wanted them to hear what he was saying about Christ. He, did, he very much wanted to be sort of back in the woodwork and have Christ be out front for them to see publicly portrayed as crucified, as he wrote elsewhere. Yes, Paul was unimpressive in how he had spoken, and he was unimpressive in his attitude as well while he spoke. Look at verse 3 there. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. You see that? Wow. When you think of Paul, the great Apostle to the Gentiles. That's not what leaps into our mind. But Paul's bringing him back. Remember, he's saying, remember when the Spirit came to you in power, and remember how it came. Remember, I was the one that delivered that message to you, and this is the way he did it. In weakness and in fear and much trembling. Compared to the great philosophers of the day, Paul was weak in how he approached his role. He didn't approach it with bravado. 
He had approached the Corinthians in fear and in trembling. Now, he doesn't mean that he was afraid of what people would think of the gospel he shared. That's not what he's saying here. He wasn't self-conscious or ashamed of the gospel. He wasn't a people pleaser. I mean, we need only read in places like 2 Timothy chapter 2 and be convinced of how willing he was to suffer for the advance of the gospel. We, we need only look at places like Acts chapter 14 and chapter 16 to see what he willingly went through. He wasn't afraid of men. That's not the point here. These two words, fear and trembling, they actually come together often in Paul's writings in the New Testament. And they usually describe this. Now zone in for a minute here. When he speaks of, of, of being in fear and in much trembling, he's talking about what happens to men when they find themselves in the presence of God who's working in power. That's why he was fearful. It was the fear of the Lord acting to the very thing he was doing. That's why he was trembling. That's why, that's why he, was, he was in weakness personally. This is described in places like Philippians chapter 2. Listen, Philippians 2 and verse 12 and 13. Paul writes to, the, to, to that church, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And here's the reason why. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Why should you work out your salvation in fear and trembling? Because friends, when you work it out, when you walk in the faith of, of the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ, you know that God's working. It's His power working through you. And that's why you work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And that's the sort of fear and trembling that Paul was experiencing, that he was uh, wanting the Corinthians to remember. I didn't come to you beating my chest and saying, listen how awesome I speak. I was in great fear of the Lord. I was in the, in the presence of His power as I delivered His message. Remember. So Paul's weakness, his fear and trembling was not because he was afraid of man or afraid that God wouldn't do what he said he would do if Paul would witness. No, Paul was acting in confident faith, knowing that he didn't have anything himself to add to the gospel in order for God to powerfully work in the Corinthian people. And so Paul surely looked unimpressive and weak, and he wanted them to remember that. But then he didn't need to look or behave in a special way to unlock God's power. That's his point. He merely had to share the gospel in humility and simplicity, trusting the Spirit to work according to his good pleasure. After all, revivals cannot be predicted. We're just to be faithful. We can forget that when we're looking for a mentor or when we're voting on an elder or even calling a man to serve as a full-time pastor. We might think a man with a booming voice or a sense of theatrics in his preaching or a persuasive way of calling people through altar calls is what we should be looking for. Now, we have qualifications, of course. God gives us 
gives them to us in places like 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. But we don't need men who are trying to be impressive. We don't need that. We don't need leaders who see themselves as very gifted and strong. What we need are leaders who are weak because they know that in their weakness, faithful weakness, God shows himself to be strong. That's what we need. And friends, we need to have that way of thinking when we, when we go to share the gospel with our friends too. You don't need to be impressive. Just hold out the gospel to them. God will come in power if he chooses to do so right then. You just be faithful. Just be faithful and trust that he's got the power thing all locked up. And he'll unleash it in his good pleasure. Let us just be part of the faithful way forward. Paul had been that kind of person. He had been a weak preacher in Corinth. But he hadn't been weak only in the sense of being personally unimpressive. Remember I said that was kind of a pregnant phrase, that weak preacher, right? He was personally unimpressive, both in his speech and, and his attitude and his approach and all of that. But he was also a weak preacher because the message he shared was in the eyes of the world that of a weak Savior. They heard Paul's testimony, the Corinthians, about a champion who was bested about a Messiah who was defeated, about a Savior who was silenced by being beaten and crucified. They heard a sad story about a man who said he could save people, but who ended up dying instead of delivering. That's not lofty speech, friends. That's weak preaching. But it is exactly that message that Paul had devoted himself to and that the Corinthians had heard from him that unleashed God's power. Look at verse 2 there. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. A singular focus and passion permeated Paul's preaching. That's a lot of P's, I know. It was the death of Christ that was the hallmark of what he shared with them. It's not that he never spoke of anything else, but rather that it was his central theme. Paul witnessed to the one thing that arrests sinners in their tracks, that someone had to die for the horrible offense their whole lives are before a holy God. You're so bad, friend, that God had to send his son to the slaughter to fix you. That's what Paul's preaching was like. He focused on the death, on the weakness, if you will, of the Savior. But, you know, he didn't just say anybody had to die, right? The one who had to die to satisfy the penalty is none other than the Son of God. That's the point. Nobody else could have pulled it off. Christ Jesus himself had to be subjected to unthinkable torture and, and suffering on a cross in order to save men. That was the theme of Paul's preaching. And he was telling them, remember, let's not get fuzzy on the details about how you came to Christ. 
That's the weak preaching that must be heard for men to be saved. Coming to grips with that reality, hearing the report of that terrible event brought about by by one's depravity and God's mercy is the good news that offers hope. it's 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 the good report that reconciles sinners to God that would result in them being forgiven and spared endless suffering in hell personally. So Paul reminds the Corinthians that his weak preaching is how they were introduced to the Savior. He put before them not eloquent oratory, not lofty logic, not a new philosophy to embrace, but the report of a person who died for them and whose death could save them. Now I've seen Christians go soft in their evangelism. I myself have gotten squishy in my own gospel. But we must be devoted to this weak message. The message we think our friends don't want to hear, in fact. They need to hear of how and why Christ died. Talk of a personal relationship with him isn't enough. Talk of asking him into your heart isn't enough. Even telling people they need to ask for forgiveness isn't enough. They need to know about Christ's death. They need to know why he needed to die and what his death accomplished. To focus on what the world sees as weakness and failure and gore only occurred to Paul because God sent him to do just that. That's what the message of the Scriptures is. It all points to the sacrifice of the Savior to fix this sin problem. And Paul understood his mission. And so he didn't come as some kind of hero, but as simply a herald. He came to Corinth not with his own unique thoughts on really anything, but rather proclaiming to them the testimony of God. That's verse 1. Now some manuscripts have there the mystery of God. I'm not sure it makes much of a difference. For the gospel message given to the apostles was not discovered by them. So it was a mystery in that sense. But it was also the testimony that God revealed to them. It was the testimony or the plan or the mystery or the good news of God in Christ. Apart from a miraculous movement of the Spirit, no one believes it, right? So you can try to pepper it up as much as you want. No one will will buy it. Not unless the Spirit moves in power when you simply report what Jesus did. And that was Paul's role, and he very much wanted the Corinthians to remember the weakness of that preaching. And so he had come to Corinth as one announcing what God had revealed to him, announcing who Jesus is and why he had come into the world to die. Paul was not special, but the message was awesome. Paul was not impressive But the message was glorious. Paul was not strong of speech, but the message was the very power of God, as chapter 1 and verse 18 told us. So God unleashes His power through weak preaching. 
The Corinthians had experienced that power, that transforming power of God, and Paul had come to them as a weak preacher. He's the one that introduced them to the Savior through the weakness of his preaching. And so Paul leads the Corinthians to value not impressive men, but weak preachers. For it is through weakness that God's power is in fact unleashed. And that's my final point. It is through weakness that God's power is in fact unleashed. And we see that in the last part of verse 4 into verse 5. Lots of people have spiritual experiences that aren't due to God's power. They have spiritual experiences that last for a while. We know this. The Scripture teaches about it. The, the parable of the soils is an example. Right? And we have people in our own families, our own friends that started off strong and fizzled away. And that's proof that it wasn't God's power that had brought them to that experience. Lots of people have those sort of interactions or experiences or decisions that aren't based on God's power. And there's lots of false teachers out there making much of themselves and their abilities. They're out there peddling counterfeit revivals and fake healings and lying to people about how to feel close to God. But human artistry and showmanship cannot awaken a dead spirit. Only the fearful might of God can. Pharaoh's magicians and Simon the sorcerer and Acts chapter 8, full of themselves and their own counterfeit glory, they tried to bottle up power and use it for their own purposes. But they could not do what our glorious God can. They cannot save anyone. They cannot alter a man's eternity. And neither can all the charlatans of our day. Spiritual rebirth, revival, experiencing the Spirit's awesome power to change your life from the inside out, that comes about through testifying of Christ crucified. It makes no human sense to do so. No, none of us would have thought to, to come up with that kind of message. Who would look to a God who showed such weakness and turn to Him in faith? But this is how God builds His church. It's how we save sinners. And Paul trusted in this mysterious reality. He was a weak preacher, as I said, and he had faith that if he would be that way, if he would obediently hold up the cross of Christ as the theme of his message, the one who laid down his life for his people, then it would result in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, as verse 4 said, when men believed. Men would believe not because they were all ginned up because of some music or, or because of the persuasion of a speaker or something like that. It would, be, it would be a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power, the raw, awesome, creative power of God Himself. And that's just what happened in Corinth. When Paul held out his very human presentation of the Savior who made himself nothing, the Spirit had opened their eyes of faith. 
Think about this. When the death of Christ is held out as the only thing that will restore fallen men to God, and they hear it and they truly believe, it is undeniable that their faith then is due to the power of God. Right? In other words, if, if, if we, as, as those out on the mission, would not make much of ourselves but only hold out the death of Jesus Christ as the hope for sinners, and they hear it and believe, there's no boasting. What did you do? All you did was point to Jesus. And that's the point. God's power is unleashed through weak preaching. That's how it comes about. So friends, if you think yourself a weak preacher, come on, get in line, we're all there. That's what, that's what Paul is reminding the Corinthians of. Don't look to impressive people and don't think you need to be impressive. Just be weak and point to the strong one, the one that died and rose again. That will unleash the power of God. That, that just helps us in so many ways. I mean, I've got some applications written down. I don't know if any of them are what you're thinking of, but I'll share them. If the Corinthians experienced God's saving power through weakness, it was our experience too, why do we continue to think only impressive people can be evangelistic? Why are we always discounting our ability to share the gospel with our friends? It doesn't make any sense. Why do we think we can't lead people to God? Why do we think we have nothing to say? Why do we continue to value big personalities and those, those who speak with flair rather than those who faithfully hold out the crucified Savior? If you've had a spiritual experience in the past that happened because of a big, impressive concert or because you were enamored with the power of a, the preacher's persuasion... Be sure today that your faith is not in man's wisdom, but in the Spirit's power. And the way you can do that is making sure that your only hope is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not because you prayed a prayer sometime. Not, not because you had an impressive experience. Only if your hope is found in the one who died in your place and rose again. That's how you can be sure. Right? Lots of other applications you might make. Take a, take a moment of quiet reflection and ask God to reveal some of them to you.